Hey, all you zombies, hello and welcome back. Uh, we took a brief break for the summer, but we're, we're back just in time for, well, what's happening outside my window is construction season. <laughs> Me too, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was uh, way too hot and noisy to do these uh, for the past few weeks because from where I sit right now, I'm kind of like in the, the epicenter, I think, of the construction in this neighborhood. They're building a condo there. They're building another one over there. There's one being built over there. There's so many cranes around here. Um, it, it feels like those pictures of New York that you saw from the 1930s, you know, where it was just nothing. It was just, they were building the entire city at once. That's what it feels like in my neighborhood right now. Well, and it's been a fantastic summer in terms of all the, the cool geek stuff that's happening. Uh, it's Geek Week on YouTube. It's also Shark Week. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on. And, uh, you know, lots of cool things that are happening. My name, by the way, is Chris Abel. Uh, and my cohort over there is Mr. Richard Krause. Nice to see you. Nice to be back. Um, the uh, Let's talk about The Conjuring a little bit. Should we kick yes. off with The Conjuring? I mean, you were, just before we went live here, you were saying that you had just gone to see it. So I let did. Me about your, uh, let me know your feelings on it. Uh, you know, I thought it was, number one, it's a fun movie. So it's, it's one of the, um, I used to work many, many lifetimes ago in a video store. One of the biggest problems was that people would come in and say, give me a scary movie to take right. home. And at that time, our shelves were full of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's not what they were asking for. This is the kind of movie that people were looking for in terms of just being scared witless, you know, with, with things that kind of creep up your spine, just fantastic. Um, this whole idea that the, the clapping game, I thought it was ingenious. Well, it, it, there, you see part of that in the ad. And so what the story, essentially what the story is, there's a young couple. They've got uh, a whole bunch of kids. There's three or four girls in the family. And uh, they move out to the country. They leave the city. They're going to start afresh in a, in a new place, which is the beginning of so many horror movies. So it's like fresh-faced family, like, Yahoo, we're going to get this going. Life is going to be amazing. I wonder why this house was so cheap. Well, whatever, we're going to buy it and move in. So they buy it, they move in, uh, and then just weird things start to happen. The clocks stop at the same time every day. Uh, there's creaky doors. There's all sorts of weird stuff. But in the trailer, uh, the, the, the little girls play this game called the clapping game, which is kind of like hide-and-seek, only you clap to kind of give people a clue where you're going to be. And uh, the ghosts or the whatever it is that's kind of uh, haunting this house kind of chips in and starts to play as well. So in the trailer, you see, I think, what is one of these really effective scenes. You see Lily Taylor, who plays the mother, and it's just her face, and then there's darkness around her, and then out of the darkness comes these two hands that go right in the very front of it, and it's brilliant. It's a really great moment. And in the theater, when I saw it, uh, in the theater, people were kind of like screaming and laughing at the same time, and I love that reaction to movies. I love it when you get that kind of feeling like anything could happen. Uh, there's going to be a little like yelling, a little screaming, people laughing, people just having a really great time at a movie that's got loads of atmospherics and you know some kind of good thrills and chills. Yeah, it's it's you know there are um, some movies that are very good at giving you boo scares, or maybe they've they've come up with a, a creative serial killer or something like that, but they're not really well constructed in terms of how things are shot, how things are edited. I thought The Conjuring was brilliant in terms of 
always giving you that vision of the frame of the camera, where you're looking, and, and knowing that there's something sort of hiding behind here or sneaking up behind there, and then the audio constantly, you know, yeah. hearing giggling off in the background. I thought that was really, really effective, very ingenious. Well, James Wan is the director, and he directed the first, or co-directed the first Saw movie, created that franchise, and then stepped away from it. I think he was an executive producer on the 400 sequels that came afterwards. But uh, other than that, he's made a number of movies, uh, like Insidious, that are just, the, the, they're these creepy movies that kind of sneak up on you a little bit. They're, they're just atmospheric. They're creepy. They're not bloods and guts and slashers. Uh, and, you know, Freddy and Jason and all that stuff, uh, they have characters that are more like this thing. Yeah. This is the creepy little doll uh, from The Conjuring. Um, now, the, the story is apparently based on a true story, and it's based on uh, two ghost hunters or demonologists or, or whatever you want to call them called Ed and Lorraine Warren. In the movie, they're played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. And Vera Farmiga, you know, from Bates Motel and The Departed, lots of movies like that. And uh, they uh, were the people who investigated the Amityville Horror, uh, the original story that kind of blew up and turned into the, the, the horror movies that we know there. Uh, the Haunting in Connecticut, another horror film that um, was based on one of their cases. And essentially, you know, when your house starts creaking and uh, doors start slamming by themselves and lights are flashing on and off. You call the Warrens in just to see what's going on. And in this case, there's this creepy doll that is uh, um, related to the story. And the, the doll is not, there's not a direct link. It's more the Warrens, I think, kind of bring the evil from the doll into the house or something, right? Because the dual story didn't really connect with the stuff that was happening in the house, but it was a main motif in the film. Yeah, that was a big um, discussion that me and my, my, my family had after we saw the film. Was like, you know, the doll's creepy, no no doubt about it. And they were very effective in terms of having it in this, this room full of other, you know, trophies that had been collected. But it really didn't connect to the, the haunting that they were investigating, nor did it really mean much. I kind of felt like it was just something that was put there because maybe studios felt you needed that. You know, the saw had its kind of, you know, mannequin doll kind of person that maybe that was something they wanted, or maybe he's trying to establish something for sequels. Well, see, that may well be. I mean, the, the, the Warrens, uh, I think, would make a great kind of central, two central characters in a, a series of movies. I mean, keep in mind that The Conjuring, uh, it came out three or four weeks ago now, uh, and it's made a lot of money. It cost nothing to make, and it's made an awful lot of money. And I personally am a fan of kind of low-budget, good, creepy, dirty little horror movies. And, and The Conjuring is one of those. And I can see spinning this off and, you know, uh, making another uh, movie about another case. And the thing that's brilliant about it, I think, is that the movies don't necessarily have to be particularly related. You might have an artifact like this doll that, that goes from movie to movie. Um, or you might have just the two characters, Ed and Lorraine. But you, you can move them on. You can put them in almost any situation, supernatural-wise, you know. And I think it could be a, a good, as long as you do it right, you just don't, you know, blow the budget on special effects. Don't do all that stuff. Just, you know, slam some doors and, you know, have some creepy, uh, you know, a, a movie projector that shows you the future. There's an idea you could use. Uh, but it's just something like that. 
uh, that would be a, a cool series of movies that I, I would uh, I would welcome that. Yeah, it, uh, and I kind of got that feeling when they, they zoom into that trophy room of his that has all the different trophies right. from the different adventures that they had. It was kind of like, you know, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Right? I was going to say the Night Gallery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Each, each one has its own story kind of behind it. I thought that was very great. Uh, you know, they had three different kind of mechanisms. They had the clapping game, they had the doll, very creepy, and then they had the, the music box. And although we've seen music boxes before, I thought they did a fantastic job with this one in terms of having the mirror. Well, music boxes are always creepy. And yeah. they, you, they, they pop. Let's just see if uh, some obvious. Yeah, well, there's a whole video here called Best Lullabies, the music box in horror movies on yeah. YouTube. So we'll put that up on the website so you can have a look. But uh, um, yeah, there, you know, there's there's something that's that's, I think, creepy about something that's innocent, like a doll, but this doll has, you know, like blood-stained hands, it looks like. And there's a, but there's something that's very creepy about you take something quite innocent and just put a little, you know, a little spin to it. Like, you know, the, the, it, it, frequently in horror movies, when there is a music box and they open it up, and typically when you open up a music box, a little ballerina or something pops up and, and, and spins around, the ballerina is usually broken. Or something like that. There's something that's just not quite right about it, you know. Yeah. Creepy. Very, very really cool. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't too thrilled about um, when the game kind of, or when the movie left the storytelling aspect of it, and it became steeped in its own mythology, where they were talking about, well, it's a class, this demon, and you have to use this. And, you know, when they started introducing, almost yeah. like you needed your own manual to kind of follow along in terms of what the, the two ghost hunters were talking about. That, to me, kind of detracted from the, the the spell that the movie was casting over. Yeah, I'm not always sure about that. I mean, I just came from a movie, in the, which I cannot tell you the title of, because it doesn't open for a few weeks, and I'm not allowed to review it yet. But it's it's uh, kind of a cross between Harry Potter and Twilight and probably some other young adult uh, fiction. It's sort of a big mishmash of all this stuff banged together. Uh, and it's, it's fine. It's a good little movie. Okay, little, and that maybe not good, but a good enough little movie. But the kind of interesting thing about it, for me anyway, was the way that they handled the uh, enormous amount of of exposition that you have to go through just to have the story make sense. Now, in Harry Potter, it seemed to me that they did a really great job of introducing terms like muggles. You know, even because I've never read the books, I read the first book. I didn't read any beyond that. Uh, but I have seen all the movies, and in the in the movies, you know, I don't remember anyone. And maybe maybe they do this, but I I, I think they might have done it a little bit more cleverly. They just have someone say, "Well, muggles are humans," you know, and, and sort of give you definitions. This movie gives definitions for everything that's happening, and I just thought, you know what? There's got to be a better way to get this information or to create this mythology because they have different names for you know various supernatural entities that are that are part of the story and i thought there's got to be a better way to do this you've got to be able to show it to us rather than tell us because when you show it to us it's cinematic when you tell us everything it's radio with pictures and i wanted i wanted something more and i think that the, the harry potter movies did that really well and other movies struggle with that to try and get the information across in an interesting way 
uh, without, uh, you know, without uh, uh, just giving us a, a rundown of terms and demon class 57, which, which means that they're smelly as well as evil, you know. Well, uh, let's take a moment and just show off the doll a little bit. Give me an idea of, of what kind of features of it. I love that this doll appeared after you saw the movie, unannounced. Yep. You had no idea. Yeah, well, it was weird. A box showed up, and it had uh, a candle, a conjuring candle in it, um, but and this doll wrapped in kind of you know a shroud almost, and then um, a sage burning thing, you know, like a, a, like a <laughs> like a smudge. I think it's called a smudge, where you you walk through and you can exercise demons from your house by burning it. Um, so these things came, and it was weird because the box was quite large, and none of this stuff's very big. You know, it all could have probably fit into a shoebox, but it came in a very large box. And when you open it up, the first thing that you notice, because everything's wrapped, is that it smells like really nothing you've smelled before. And it was that sage smudge that was in there that had a really kind of herby, overpowering kind of uh, uh, scent. And then I opened this up, and uh, the PMC, my preferred movie companion who uh, lives here with me, uh, you know, she said, you know, uh, that cannot stay in the house. It's way too creepy to keep it in the house. And it's particular, it's even creepier, you know, she's got like her hair braided and her stuff. And, you know, she kind of looks like a normal little doll. You might see a little girl playing with, except that she's got scars on her face and stuff like that. And a little sign around her neck that says, miss me. <laughs> it kind of, a uh, childlike scrawl says, miss me. And uh, so I've had to keep it uh, locked away here just so it doesn't come alive at night and terrorize us <laughs> while we sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it out of sight and out of mind. Yeah, absolutely, because it's uh, it is a uh, it's a uh, it's you know I, you get a lot of this kind of stuff. As a, when you're a movie critic, you get a lot of this kind of stuff, and uh, often I don't hang on to a lot of it. But I I, I this for some reason I I can't quite I haven't quite found it. I mean I I think because of what happened in the movie when they tried to get rid of it in the movie and it came back and terrorized them some more. I'm like I don't know what to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're lucky that the PMC doesn't have a, a sixth sense of humor because yes. that doll could end up moving around your apartment. Yes, it could. Or like, you know, on the bed at night and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is a good movie. The, the Conjuring, you know, it's been a weird uh, uh, summer at the movies. And, you know, uh, this kind of segues into something that I wanted to talk about. But uh, I'll, I'll continue on with The Conjuring for a second. You know, so many movies. Like, uh, you know, starting with Iron Man 3, moving in, and I probably don't have these in the right order, but you get the idea. So Iron Man 3, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, Pacific Rim, which I loved, by the way, loved Pacific Rim, but it fits in with this sort of big, bombastic kind of summer thing that's been happening. Uh, Superman, Man of Steel, all that stuff. There have been so many huge movies that cost $200 million or, you know, $150 plus million to make um, that I've really found kind of underwhelming. You know, I'm not lumping uh, Pacific Rim in there at all because I thought Pacific Rim... Good. That movie made me feel like a like a 12-year-old watching my first Godzilla movie. Like, it was just so giddy and exciting for me. I loved it. But, you know, a lot of these movies... Uh, just kind of felt the same. I thought, you know, it's 200 million bucks spent to to create this movie, and uh, they all seem to follow the same kind of pattern. And then in the last half an hour, it's just a big 
action sequence that that will eventually the world will be saved or you know there there are enormously high stakes. Uh, world War Z is another one of these. Oh yeah. You know, and I, I just and then then along comes a movie like The Conjuring, which cost nothing. Cost it like what it probably cost whatever the the catering budget on Man of Steel was to make the entire movie, and it surprised me and it kept me just as interested. And I know that the studios aren't as interested in making lower budget movies because they want to make eight hundred million dollars from a movie, and you don't do that typically speaking from a movie that costs anywhere from you know ten to thirty million bucks. You're just not going to spend that kind of profit out of it. But if you have a big tentpole movie like you know, the Man of Steel or something like that, you can theoretically make a huge amount of money. But, you know, The Conjuring made me uh, 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 nostalgic for times when, you know, you had more variety in your movie-going diet during the summer, when movies of all shapes and sizes. And, you know, it's getting a little better now. I mean, throughout the summer, movies like uh, Francis Ha were sprinkled in between the big blockbusters, and there were, you know, nice little movies that were really entertaining. Uh, the Conjuring came along. Uh, Blue Jasmine is out in theaters right now, which is really terrific. And it's a, you know, a Woody Allen movie, which means it's probably not very, you know, not, not very expensive, and, but, you know, really entertaining. Um, but it, it, for so many of these big movies, uh, critics have not been particularly kind to them. Um, Lone Ranger in particular, I think, was one that was really, you know, castigated by critics, except for me and a handful of others. I thought that The Lone Ranger was uh, a wonky Western that sort of did what it set out to do and had some fun moments. But uh, I was interested to see that uh, Johnny Depp and Jerry Bruckheimer and uh, Gore Verbinski and, and uh, one of the other stars of the movie, Army Hammer, uh, have come out and uh, in a European interview said, listen, the critics destroyed this movie. We made a good movie and the critics didn't like it and nobody went to see it as a result. Now, nobody went to see it, probably still made, you know, a hundred million bucks. That's still a lot of money, but it costs so much money that, you know. But the, the, the thing that has amused me about this is that the critics destroyed the movie and I just don't feel that that's right. I, uh, in my world, when this story broke, on Saturday or Sunday, in my world, Twitter just lit up. They're like, oh my God, we actually do make a difference. People are like a highly sarcastic, you know, writing this. Because uh, these big temple movies, I never feel really particularly like what I say about them is going to sway an awful lot of people one way or the other. Pacific Rim, I was a, a, a I trumpeted for very loudly because uh, I was so wildly entertained by it that I was I was on Twitter and I, I made my feelings known about that movie. But you know, Man of Steel, which I gave a so-so review to, you know, maybe you know maybe it, it, it affected the box office percent uh, that I gave it a so-so review. But you know, it's negligible. Uh, for the for these big movies, I don't think the critics mean an awful lot. For movies like Blue Jasmine and Francis Hyde, Before Midnight, absolutely, we can make a difference. We can we can drum up an audience for that. But I just thought it was funny to see these guys who were able to raise, you know, two hundred million bucks plus to make their movies, uh, blaming the critics and not marketing and not uh, the idea that you know you've made a Lone Ranger movie that has cannibalism in it but yet it also has goofy humor that seems to be directed towards kids in it, 
but the kids really shouldn't be seeing the cannibalism. And it's a Lone Ranger character. And I'm 50 years old. I've never seen the Lone Ranger on television. Like the Lone Ranger wasn't even an issue. Like wasn't even uh, that much of a popular culture hero for me, let alone kids that are gonna, likely to see a Disney movie. So blame all those decisions. Blame the decision to bring this back, blow the marketing, make a movie that didn't have a tone for either adults or kids, and uh, and then you know have a look in the mirror. Don't come uh, you know coming after the critics saying that we destroyed the audience for your movie because you know maybe maybe a little bit, but you know as I said, point zero 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 six five point two you know one, and that's it. Well, we live in a modern age now where, the, where society, and especially audiences, are mobs. They're, they're large crowds which have their own direction, their own uh, you know, way of reacting to things. It's really, really tough now to kind of anticipate what audiences will go for and not go for. So I don't think you can blame it so much on, on critics. Um, maybe it's the fact that it was a Western, and Westerns have not done well for a very long time. Yeah, people don't care about Westerns, I don't think. I mean... You know, uh, True Grit did okay, 310 to Yuma did okay, but, you know, those movies also had big stars in them. You know, this movie, Johnny Depp was, you know, by far and away the most famous person, and Army Hammer's in it as well. Um, but they, they, you know, it, it just seemed like a movie that, that marketing-wise, nobody really knew what it was. I mean, I think everybody knows they're saying, hi-ho, silver, but I'm not sure that if you talk to a 12-year-old on the street, that he would know that it's the Lone Ranger saying, "Hi ho, silver right away," you know. Yeah, and and we're seeing a lot of um, it's really weird, but a lot of angst is very important these days. Audiences tend to react to that. There's a study that shows that over time, all the faces on Lego characters have been getting progressively angrier and angrier and angrier. <laughs> yeah, and it just seems to be. That that you know I've seen it in video games. There's a, a growing amount of aggression that people right. are demanding from their culture. And when you come out with a western where the guy is wearing white because he's you know a moralistically stand-up kind of guy, you know I think a lot of young 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 men unfortunately kind of tune out from that. That's not what they want. They want somebody that's gritty, conflicted. Yeah, I mean I mean you certainly see that in the in the the fanboy movies uh, that and fanboy and girl movies that that. Uh, the superhero films have become much more, uh, uh, much more gritty. Uh, you know, if you look at Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, uh, they are corny. They're fun. I love those movies, but they are corny and they're a little bit over the top and they're all about, you know, truth and the American way and all that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman certainly isn't. Uh, you've got, you know, um, you know, a reformed alcoholic and in Iron Man, you've got, you know, all those sort of things, you know, so things are different. And, you know, when you have troubled times, you have troubled people, I guess. And people, you know, I, I guess want to see that reflected uh, in their art somehow. Um, I would be interested to see uh, how a Superman like the Christopher Reeve Superman would do now, um, because I think people would 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 like it. I think it would be different. I think people would sort of accept it and uh, and jump on board with it. I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure how much more of of Superman, you know, snapping Zod's neck. I need to see because it for me doesn't fit what I think Superman is and what the character should be. And I think. Uh, you know, I, 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 I look at those movies and I just think, you know, I, I wish that it was sometimes just like a little simpler, 
that these movies were a little simpler and 90 minutes long would be nice too. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that new characters, when people create new franchises that are built on angry, aggressive, angsty, those characters don't end up getting long sequels. It's the, we keep going back to the, the golden age of stories and characters and trying to make angst-ridden versions of them. Well, as it turns out, I mean, you know, Batman versus Superman is coming. Like it or not, I mean, people are excited about it. I hope it's good. I hope everything's good. That's my thing. I'm an op I'm an internal. Yeah. I hope everything's good. I just, I don't know, you know. Um, but uh, they are, you know, looking now. Henry Cavill will probably end up playing Superman in this movie, and so they're now they're looking to cast uh, Batman. And there's some interesting casting choices being thrown out there. Ryan Gosling is one of them. I, I I'm not sure that he's the guy. But I think uh, Josh Brolin, who right now appears to be the frontrunner, could be a pretty good Batman. And what they're going to do, what my understanding is anyway, and everything's likely to change, but you know, do the Batman versus Superman movie, and then they're going to restart Batman again with a different actor. But they're not going to go back and do origin stories. They've, they've done it twice now in the last 20 years. It's enough. Uh, so they want to have him in his late uh, 30s or 40s, and he'll be beaten up a little bit. He'll be so it'll be a, a gloomier Batman probably than or, or as gloomy as we've come used to uh, in the in the Nolan movies. But I think it'll be a little different. And I think Josh Brolin is the guy. I mean, I I would I would think that that would be just sort of off kilter enough uh, casting. But you know, he can be a tough guy, and he can do the action as well as being a, a pretty good actor. So I'd be curious. I'd be curious to see what happens there. Well, he's definitely an interesting choice. I'll I'll check him out for sure. Um, along the same lines, in terms of talking about casting, this past Sunday uh, was a big reality yeah. TV reveal event. Sadly, um, but to showcase who is going to be the next Doctor Who. And, um, a bit of a surprising choice. This man here is named Peter Capaldi, yep. the 12th Doctor. Well, he's in a movie called In the Loop. And if you have not seen In the Loop, you have to. It not, only, it not only features uh, an amazing performance uh, from Peter Capaldi, but uh, James Gandolfini's in it. And it is. Uh, um, the uh, story of sort of the, the back room uh, dealings in government in England. And, uh, you know, there, there may be a war, there may not be a war, but Peter Capaldi plays, uh, um, you know, one of the back room types with the foulest mouth, like possibly ever, but so funny. This is like not a, don't, you know, don't pull this up at work and try and get away with listening to it. I don't have the kids around, but it's a really great movie and he's fantastic in it. Yeah, and a big surprise for, for a lot of people because he's not really a name in the world of genre. A lot of comic book fans have no idea who this A lot of Americans, I don't think, know who Peter Capaldi really is. Yeah. Um, I kind of look at it as – I mean, I think it's, it's an excellent choice because you want really someone who's a good actor to take on a role, to try to do something interesting with it. Um, but here I'll bring his, his photo back up again. He's My take on it, he's kind of one of those that guys. That if you've watched a lot of British television yeah. and some of the movies, you don't know who he is. You see his photo, and you see him maybe you know doing a scene. You go, oh, that guy. Right. Because well, I'm just looking him up here on IMDb now. Uh, yeah. I mean, people might know him from Torchwood. 
which was, you know, an American thing. But other than that, I mean, it's like getting on the nativity, field of blood, the penguins. Well, uh, let's see, uh, the thick of it, the hour, all British television. So he's well known over there. But these are shows that we probably haven't had a close look at over here in North America. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's in World War Z, but he's not in it until the last probably 40 minutes or something like that. And he's not in it very much. And he's got a couple of things coming out. Oh, he's playing Cardinal Richelieu in the Musketeers uh, TV series, too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, uh, but it's not like he's... Uh, it's not like he's everywhere. That's true. Yeah, it is. Well, he's he's an older actor. He's been around for a very long time. He's always been in supporting roles. He's never had a chance to be a lead. So this is kind of huge. He gets a chance to finally be the main character of a series, and that that I think is huge for for a guy like him. Probably, especially at his age, he's probably thought those opportunities have kind of come and gone. But yeah, well, he looks the part to me. You know, from the picture that I'm seeing here, he. He looks like, uh, you know, he fits the lineage anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, and to me, I think of him as being like a Brian Cranston in that he is someone who you've never seen him sort of break out and do something really creative. Uh, right. and, you know, it's the same. A lot of I, I always laugh when I, I'm checking online forums and people complain that Brian Cranston doesn't get to do enough movies. It's like, no, he's in them. You just never registered that that was him because he yeah. was always you know, an administrator or a manager. You never really connected to to see that he's Walter White, yeah. uh, Heisenberg. Well, he's a go see Drive. You want to see a great Brian Cranston performance. Uh, and one that you don't necessarily expect. Uh, he's amazing. And as is Albert Brooks. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's it's uh, it's really worth a look. But Brian Cranston's great; he's fantastic in it. Now, I was kind of disappointed that they felt they needed to do a big reveal reality TV show to to have this announcement. Uh, it, it was noticeable that nobody that was actually involved with Doctor Who showed up for it. The producers, all the writers, were like, "I want nothing to do with this." The network wow. wants to have this little somebody in a dress and have people on the couch talking how much they love Doctor Who and then the big reveal and have Peter Capaldi come out. All the, the, the Doctor Who writers just sat at home on Twitter and kind of made snarky remarks about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I thought that was kind of a funny kind of evolution of what's going on with, with television these days, that it's meant to be driven through announcements that people can talk about on Twitter and have the time to react to. Uh, Mark Gatiss, who's one of the writers on the show, said that he remembers that with John Pertwee, there was no warning at all. He didn't find out until it was literally on television that the character died. And for him, that was truly traumatic in a good way. It's like reading a book. You don't, you know, what? What do you mean? You know? yeah. Well, there's something that's kind of, you know, old Hollywood about the whole thing. It used to be, you know, 70 years ago when they were looking for whoever was going to play Scarlett, uh, Scarlett O'Hara in a movie in Gone with the Wind, that they would do like a, a tour across the United States and, and audition women from every city and they would have talent shows and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and then give the part to Vivian Lee because she was going to get it anyway. But they, you know, they, they would make much more of a bigger deal about it to get uh, sort of advance word buzzing and, and churning a little bit. And, I mean, with the Internet now, I mean, you know, Superman versus Batman. I mean, you just Google Superman plus Batman right now, and thousands of speculative articles will come up with people writing like, well, I think Josh Rowland would be fantastic, but only if he shaves his head. And, you know, like, whatever. Like, there's just so much advanced word on everything now that a lot of it 
strikes me as being kind of meaningless. I mean, there's just so much speculation. So maybe the Doctor Who people thought, you know what, let's let's get some social media buzz about this. Let's keep it, you know, front and center, the Doctor Who brand or name or whatever, front and center, uh, but we'll control it. You know, yes. We'll really control this. Well, and it allows them, unfortunately, to apply the same formula that they have to all the other types of shows like there. That's the only uh, complaint that I have, is that when you sit down, you feel like you're watching uh, one of those live events for Big Brother or yeah. American Idol, or and it's the same sort of setup, it's the same couch, it's the same types of hosts that are brought in, and the pacing and the editing, everything is the same, which sort of is disrespectful to the fact that Doctor Who has its own separate culture. It's a different demographic. I think far too often what we do, we always seem to want to pretend the audience is all one big same demographic, which is not. not well, I, you know, maybe it's just as simple as that they were, the idea is that, you know, we, we have our, our loyalists, our Dr. Loves. Now let's try and sort of, you know, appeal to everybody else, you know, and, and show that we are, you know, that we're just like everybody else and, you know, dumb it, maybe dumb it down a little bit for the rest of the audience. I don't know. Maybe. Well, and that's why Peter Capaldi is an interesting choice because they have made that effort with, when they brought Dr. Who back, um, you know, they had Christopher Eccleston take the role. They wanted somebody who was younger. They right. wanted somebody who was uh, kind of recognizable, maybe not handsome, handsome, but recognizable, handsome, and then right. someone who could have love affairs and to try to, to bring in a wider audience. And David Tennant is, is considered very handsome and very good-looking. On Twitter, one guy said his daughter, the moment she saw Peter Capaldi, she screamed out, but he's not cute. <laughs> 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 and so Peter Cavaldi is an interesting choice because it bucks the trend in terms of trying to, to you know, de um, pay, to, to, to appease the marketing demands of a, of a show like this. Right. What yeah. I thought was interesting was that uh, leading up to this, there have been a lot of calls for Doctor Who to be a woman. Um, right. And then we talked to, like, Idris Elba, uh, a black actor, might actually take on the role as well. Yeah, they even had a clip uh, from uh, Doctor Who fan Stephen Hawking in his wheelchair saying she, he should be a woman. You know, there were lots of people weighing in on that. The one I thought you would like, uh, the big screen, and this has been going on for decades now. Uh, you know, no, no, why, why couldn't Doctor Who be a redhead? Oh. People have been asking for him to be a redhead for, for decades, to, as they say in England, to be a ginger. To be a ginger, yeah. Well, uh you know, maybe now is the time to do it because isn't it true? I, I read this somewhere recently. I don't have it at the, my fingertips, but uh, red hair is slowly disappearing. There's less and less people. There are less and less people born with red hair now. Than there yes, it, its lineage comes from sort of northerners. Um, it comes from from our ancestors that lived in the, the winter climate. But it doesn't survive if redheads start. You're right, having offspring, children with uh, people with black hair. Right. My, my mother had red hair. Uh, my grandmother had red hair. My grandfather had red hair. My dad had black hair. So right. it, it, perhaps it is disappearing. I hope not. Yeah. I'm just uh, a redhead's going extinct is uh, the name of an article here. Um, yeah. Maybe next time we'll discuss that. There's a it's a long, very long article about maybe how they're going extinct. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Um, well, I also wanted to talk about Shark Week. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you start because I have a prop. I didn't know we were going to talk about this. I'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Uh, this week is, I think, the 26th year of Shark Week. It's been on for, man, a very, very long time. 
And, uh, you know, it has been getting progressively more sensational with each passing year. Last year, they had a big, huge mechanical shark on what looked like a kegger beach party. Uh, they really have been trying to, to kind of grow the, di uh, the, the audience for this progressively every year. But uh, this year has proven to be highly controversial. A lot of people have been very, very angry. Uh, and it has to do with the very first Shark Week special that they put out on uh, Sunday night. Because as it turned out, it was a hoax and mockumentary. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, with with the success of Sharknado from a few weeks ago, and this is what this is the prop I just went and got. This is a shark -tipus. This is a stuffed shark -tipus. See, so from here up, shark. From here down, octopus. One of my prized. Uh, uh, weirdo possessions, Sharktopus, right there. That's awesome. And yeah, yeah, Sharktopus and the doll. It's weird over here. It is. It's a little, it's not right over here sometimes. But, uh, you know, there's been so much uh, talk about Sharknado, Sharktopus, all that kind of stuff that um, I can see where it had to, in some way, influence the the programming of Shark Week a little bit. I mean, you know, I can see some programmer going, well, you know, I mean, people seem to enjoy these, so why not throw a little mockumentary on? So it's getting away from the science a little bit, I guess, right? Is uh, that well, a lot. So, uh, the, I mean, there. it's funny because you have all the people who love Sharknado are upset about Megalodon, which is the name of the, the, the show that was put on. Right. And the problem was, number one, they didn't tell anybody. So whereas Sharknado is obvious, it's right. very honest. You know what you're seeing with Sharknado. Right. The moment you see the trailer and you see a tornado f throwing sharks onto the land, you know exactly what you're in for, and that's okay. You figure, this, you figure this probably isn't real either. Yeah. You know, that, that is unlikely to be real. Well, and it's coming from sci-fi, which is all yeah. about speculative uh, fiction anyways. Yeah. Whereas Discovery Channel, I mean, it's their mandate is to be the, the world's highest quality non-fiction uh, television channel. Yeah. But they, they showed this uh, special without any kind of forewarning, any kind of disclaimer. Uh, and what ended up happening was it, it's a ridiculous documentary. It pretends that the prehistoric shark Megalodon, which is a dinosaur, right. uh, has somehow been spotted in today's oceans and that it attacked some ship and, and ate a bunch of people. Right. And they, you know, announced at the beginning, we sent Discovery camera crews down to investigate this. Right. Uh, and apparently the camcorder was recovered, even though the ship went down to the ocean and all got wet. And it was the shaky cam, bunch of people on a boat, oh, no, we're being attacked, that kind of thing. And it progressively unspooled to become more and more ridiculous. They started to uh, pull up old Nazi photographs of submarines and U-boats that had fins in the water that, you know, they were trying to show that this thing has been around swimming alongside Nazi submarines. They uh, brought out a cannon that would shoot chum into the water. It just became more and more ridiculous. But the problem is that they kept intercutting with interviews uh, with people who had little scrolls on the bottom that said they were marine biologists. Uh, they talked to museum curators. The curators turned out to be real. I don't know if they were aware that they're in this documentary. But oh, people... I see. So they're talking like you'd have a curator. I didn't see it. So you'd have a curator saying, well, the Megalodon uh, did exist uh, 100 million years ago, blah, 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 and then cut into the mock documentary footage. Correct. That was, oh, see, that's sketchy. That is sketchy. Like, you know... These things, you know, there there have been a number of documentaries that have come along. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a form that's easy to 
to play around with. And there have been a number that have tried to pass themselves off as real, but typically they're found out early on and quickly. This Megalodon thing, I mean, I can see where someone maybe thought it would be a pretty good joke, but if it if it's played very seriously, I think it takes, I don't know, I, it doesn't seem, it, it seems uh, like, a, like a real cheat to me. Yeah, well, and I mean, played seriously enough that people were Googling the names of the marine biologists and the shark experts that were in the thing to try to find out if they were real. They were Googling the, um, the historic events that were being uh, duplicated in the, the documentary. There were footage that was being passed off as real that looked unbelievably photoshopped, where you'd have this big, large whale and then a, a fin sort of added in. I it looked really, really bad. It was very, very cheesy. At the end of it, they threw a couple of, uh, of disclaimers up on the screen that went by so fast, people actually had to go back, record the show, and pause the freeze frame just to be able to read the disclaimers, right. uh, which said that any of the institutions included in the shot, any of the curators that were interviewed, have no knowledge and do not agree and do not support any of the, 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 the information that's included in the, the, the documentary. So, well, do that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little out here. Let me uh, just, you know, for uh, giggles, that's Sharktopus right there. That's, uh... <laughs> and I'm okay with that. In fact, I think that, you know, there's, I agree that there's definitely a need for that kind of shark fantasy to thrive our fascination, but that sci-fi is the better place for it rather right. than Discovery. Or if Discovery is going to do it, there should be a clear division. It should be Saturday is, you know, complete escape fantasy night. That's when we, you know, throw all our wacky stuff up on it. Rather than commingling it with something like Shark Week, which has a 26-year history of giving you real science-based documentaries. Right. Um, but the moment that that finished, their Facebook page, the Discovery Facebook page, immediately, uh-oh, am I still there? Uh, you're still there. I can hear you. Okay. So immediately. I, I off, so I can, uh, is, is the picture of Sharktopus still up on my it's site? It's still up on your website, yeah. I, I, I have I've taken it down. So let's just see if I can really get that to go away. So we seem to be having a little bit of technical problems. Hopefully this is all translating. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, there were uh, over a thousand comments uh, that immediately hit the Discovery Facebook page from people who were really, really upset. Uh, I thought I'd share a couple of them here. Um, a lot of the ones that bothered me were, well, here's one person that said, my generation had Jacques Cousteau, science, learning, discovery. Shame on you for passing fiction off as education. Huh. Yeah, I mean, do we, can I just play devil's advocate for a minute and say, yeah. you know, are, are people uh, maybe taking this just a little bit too seriously and, you know, not having fun with it? Well, uh, I'll put it to this What an absolute shame. Discovery Channel tugged at my heartstrings for sharks and had me involved in believing for the first hour or so of the Megalodon mockumentary. Now I'm left feeling foolish and wasted my evening. Absolute garbage. Mm -hmm. um, my 11-year-old son adores Mythbusters and had grown up with the Discovery Channel. He loves science. This was his first Shark Week. We all got into it, chanting Shark Week, Shark Week, hoo-ha-ha, -ha, and such. But after Megalodon, he learned that a channel he trusted had just thrown into scientific facts to get some ratings. New word for his vocabulary, mockumentary. Mm -hmm. uh, another woman wrote, um, yes, my girl Emily went to bed after the first five minutes. Poor girl didn't even have to say bedtime to get her to go to bed. She was upset. Right. Uh, will there be any legitimate scientific programming about sharks this week? 
Uh, my nine-year-old decided on his own to go to bed after 15 minutes. Turning kids away from science and math equals a big part of this country's current and future problems. Hmm. Well, I guess people uh, weren't uh, in on the joke, uh, you know, and it, and it's too bad uh, that they that they sort of handled it uh, in the way that they did because maybe had they been a little bit more upfront, they wouldn't be getting this kind of uh, hate mail from people. It's it, yeah, they're getting a lot of it, and they're going to keep getting it because um, I did some research today, and I found out that this is actually part of the new direction that Discovery Channel is going in. So they're using this Shark Week to rebrand. Uh, Discovery Channel will no longer be known as Discovery Channel. They will simply be known as D, oh. the letter D. And the new direction that they're heading in is that more and more shows are going to be character-based. That means you're not going to see experts that are going to be delivering information. In fact, they're going to bring in actors to portray characters to go off on adventures mm. that I guess in some way will relate to a scientific topic. That, that's interesting to me because one of the, the new highest rated shows, and I wish I could get that picture of Sharktopus to go away, but I can't. So just uh, pretend Sharktopus is talking to you right now. Yes, well, I think people are, are still getting your friendly face popping up, uh, or at least I am on my side. So. Oh, are you? Okay, because all I can see is Sharktopus here. Um, so uh, one of the, the, the highest rated shows on CNN right now, and it was just nominated for a lot of Emmy Awards, is a food show. It's, it's Parts Unknown starring Anthony Bourdain. And what they've done here is done a really great mix, I think, of uh, personality-driven documentary that you will learn something from, you will go places that you'll never go. I mean, he did uh, a show that was ostensibly about traveling and eating in the Congo, a food show in the Congo that also gave you, uh, or gave me, anyway, uh, a better glimpse of politically what's going on down there and made me understand it because he talks to over meals and things. He talks to local people. He talks to chefs. He gets in there and really examines things. So I don't have a real problem with personality-based docs if they're done properly. Um, and that's something that, that I could see working really well on the Discovery Channel. Have interesting people talking about interesting things uh, and shot in an interesting way, and that's that's great TV. Well, and, and but the issue here is that when there's, they're saying character, it's not necessarily true characters. Right. I'm talking characters like you hire an actor to portray. Yeah, to play Indiana Jones types and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so one of the other shows that they're upset about with Shark Week is something called Voodoo Sharks. Mm -hmm. And the premise of the Voodoo Sharks is that down in Louisiana, in the bayou, uh, there have been a lot of sharks that have been appearing. Scientists think it's a bull shark, but what they did was they went down and they've hired some people, I don't know if they're actors, I don't know if they're real, uh, to be stereotypes, to be sort of the hillbilly, redneck, kind of Louisiana shrimp boat guys. So you've got a guy who's really, really overweight, and they nickname him Blimp, Captain Blimp. And they go off into the ocean, and he jumps into the water, uh, around a shark cage with a bunch of sharks that are, are non-violent sharks. They're not man-eating sharks. And he splashes around, pretends he's being eaten by sharks, and they cut that footage with other footage of large, great whites and stuff, hmm. and then have him climb back into the boat. And they, they do a lot of antics and things like that. 
So that becomes, to me, an issue. It's like I understand it's great to have uh, an adventure where you have somebody who's a real personality, like Jeremy Wade, who does River uh, Monsters, for example. But it becomes, I think, a cheat when you when you bring in people who are not actually doing what they, they claim to be doing. Yeah, that, uh, and, and we'll see how audiences react. You know, well, it's probably going to alienate the core <laughs> audience that they that they have who want documentaries and scientific shows and that sort of thing. But, you know, you never know. I, I uh, gave up a long time ago trying to figure out, you know, like the, the inexplicable success of something like Honey Boo Boo or, you know, shows like that. Listen, you never know what people are going to watch. I, you yeah. know, I, I myself, when I really just want to shut it down, I will watch a Storage Wars marathon and, you know, just sort of like let it wash over me just because it's, it's you know, it's on. You don't have to think about it terribly. And uh, every now and again, something funny happens. True, but there are channels for that kind of content. Uh, and channels like Discovery Channel or PBS, they were set up with, you know, um, support yeah. from television <laughs> broadcast licensing for content that's going to benefit the community, not be driven necessarily by ratings all the time. Uh, yeah. The ratings were in. And uh, that Megalodon uh, mock documentary pulled in 5 million viewers. That's probably pretty good for, for that. It is, uh, it's very good. That's up that's 140. Like that's like Mad Men numbers. That's yeah. the kind of numbers that Mad Men gets. So. That's up 141% from what it was last year. So I know that they're probably you know celebrating over at Discovery. But I will point out that in England, on the BBC, there was a, a medical presenter, Michael Mosley, who did a, an entire series that was about on the, the human body. Right. And his first episode pulled in 5 million viewers as well. And so I, it's, it's not that they're getting numbers that you could not get with serious science documentaries. I, I'm only going to suggest that there's two different audiences there, though, between like an, an American-Canadian audience versus an English audience that have fewer choices uh, in England than we do on our in our 700 channel universe and that kind of thing. So you know, it, it, it's it, it's it maybe uh, that might be slightly skewed, I think. Right, but I, I do think there is a an issue in terms of number one, lying to your audience. You, you shouldn't be in that kind of a position. Um, Discovery, to me, I, I also think it's disrespectful. I mean, Shark Week has been built on years of people willing to risk their lives to get the kind of footage that has made Shark Week famous. Lots of people coming forth to talk about the trauma. Uh, there was a, one of the most famous cases in Shark Week is a woman named Heather Pearson, who was the first person attacked by a great white on camera. Oh. And she lost her leg and came on. Shark Week with uh, an artificial leg and told her story. It was very traumatic. You could see that the years had not been kind. She'd put on a lot of weight. I had no doubt many sleepless nights, but had done her best to try to cope with the fact right. that uh, her worst nightmare came to true. In Megalodon, they have a shot where they bring in a very beautiful amputee actress right. with a fake artificial leg to do her version of that same story. Right. Except she's much more happier about life. She seems to, you know, she's got that I'm doing a movie, yay, you know, kind of feel. And that to me kind of bugs the crap out of me because I think, you know, in this business we ask so many people to donate their time and their their resources in order for us to tell our stories. And then we turn around and, and it's a bit of a slap in the face, I think. Right. Well, uh, you know, let's let's hope that with that. <laughs> 
programming that they still have some of the stuff that they have traditionally shown that has grown the audience over the years. I hope so. It's progressively starting to deteriorate. There's less and less of it on the channel. Um, I think we talked about this last year, too. Yeah. Well, how, how there was less of it last year than there was the year before. One of the other series that they've just launched is called Moonshiners. And it's about, again, you know, hillbilly-style uh, people who are the, the show pretends to follow these people as they make moonshine right. and sell it through a bait tackle shop. Of course, moonshine is illegal. Yeah. And the local police in the area where they shoot has been forced to release a press release saying, no, uh, they are not creating moonshine. If they did, we would go in and arrest them. Uh, and apparently law enforcement has been leaning on Discovery Channel to put up a disclaimer that says this is a... a Dramatic. This is you know dramatic fiction. It is not real. These guys are not actually making moonshine. They actually have actors that come in and pretend to be law enforcement on the show, to interact with these guys. The guys are supposedly real. I mean, a couple of them have been arrested for intoxication. They are the kind of guys that are missing teeth. They, they're, <laughs> they're kind of hillbilly kind of guys. I don't know where they found them. Right. The show with it, but that's the kind of stuff that's been going on, and it's it's really bothering a lot of people. Right. Well, uh, you know, uh, this sort of dovetails into uh, something that I've been talking about a, a great deal about lately. People, uh, and we, we touched on it earlier, you know, the, the big movies coming out, people have been disappointed with a lot of the, the, the films that have been coming out. And you've been hearing more and more people saying, well, you know, the best work uh, of anywhere is being done on television now. And I will agree that shows like Mad Men, uh, have uh, have uh, are great dramas that that Ray Donovan, which is a new show, fantastic. I'm John Voight. If he doesn't win every acting award going uh, for his portrayal of this completely socially inappropriate ex-con father who has a secret on Ray Donovan, if he doesn't win everything, uh, I will be very surprised. Come award season, uh, Golden Globes time next year and Emmys. Um, but shows like that, uh, and, and people are saying, well, you know, the, the, the work is there, and for sure you're getting great actors like, you know, Liev Schreiber on, on Ray Donovan, and, and uh, uh, James Woods is working uh, on that show now. Lots of people, lots of interesting actors doing television. Um, but my point, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's a fairly simple point, is that while those shows uh, contain great drama, those shows are also extended series that allow great drama to happen over an extended period of time. The Sopranos did that brilliantly well, where they would have these arcs within the season where things would grow and build in a way that was that felt very cinematic, except that they would be able to do it three or four times a season. Whereas in a movie, typically speaking, you have one great arc that will take you through an entire movie. So uh, Ray Donovan seems to be doing the same thing. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of stories kind of interweaving, um, you know, Mad Men certainly. And these are shows that, that while praised for being great drama, shouldn't be compared to movies because it's like comparison. It's like comparing the doll to Sharktopus. They are two completely different things uh, in two different uh, forms. It's like comparing books and movies. Books and movies, uh, you know, it's the famous saying, someone asked Raymond Chandler, who wrote, you know, so many uh, great detective novels that were made into movies, uh, how he feels about Hollywood ruining his movies. And he says, well, they're not ruining my books. My books are fine. They're on the shelf. They're okay. 
he understood that they were two different things. And I, I feel very strongly that people who uh, say that the movies uh, don't aren't, aren't as uh, dramatic as a lot of the really more interesting television that are out there are just misperceiving uh, the difference between the two forms. Right. Yeah, and I think what they're picking up on is that I think you know, part of it is that the, the pendulum has kind of swung, that there was an attitude earlier that television wasn't as good as movies. Yeah. Uh, and what we're now picking up on is that television has finally started to adopt some of the qualities that people have loved about movies. Yeah. And now, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny, but I think you, you've hit the nail on the head that television has the advantage of being a long form, and now that it's starting to, you know, emulate some of the quality of movies, we're, we're missing out on the fact that the movies that we're watching can't get as in-depth in their stories. Right. That's what a movie is, you know. It's meant to be a, um, a short kind of story that you get involved into for an hour and a half. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and but, you know, these the stories that, that you know, uh, Ray Donovan uh, in particular, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's really good stuff. Um, and I don't know how many series, how many episodes to be. I, I would imagine it's on Showtime in the U.S. They, they they're not going to do 22 episodes. They might do 10 or 12 or something like that. Do a shortened, very intense kind of season like Mad Men does, that sort of thing. Uh, but they're they're doing things in a very interesting way, and they're leading us dramatically down a path that I think is going to be really interesting. But to make that same story that effective in a movie, the movie would have to be you know eight hours long. And I, I think that uh, people just, you know, have to start, you know, perceiving things. I mean, I guess now more and more people are watching movies at home or on their computers, so the line between movies and television is a little blurred. But um, I'm, uh, I'm just, and, and I really, I have nothing more to say about than that than that. But it just came up over the weekend. It came up over the weekend, and and I've been thinking about it a great deal. And and you know, they they are two very different forms, and should be seen as such. I agree. I, I think you can compare good storytelling quality or craft, but you know you can't get too caught up in generalizations between the the two forms. Yeah. Now I, I'm sure you caught this story, and it was it made me happy because it's something we've actually talked about before here on Hey All You Zombies, right. which is the idea of lab grown beef. Um, this no, past, I this. Yeah, this past weekend I'm going to throw up an image here of a hamburger, but it's not the usual type of hamburger. Yeah. What you're seeing is a beef patty on a bun. There's some tomatoes and lettuce just behind it. And it is the first uh, hamburger, and there was, I think, three or four that were made that actually came out of growing uh, shoulder protein from a cow to, to grow uh, a patty. So it didn't come from a, a slain or slaughtered cattle. It came out of a lab and was presented uh, to a bunch of food experts over the weekend to, to, to tuck in and, and try out. What okay. do you think about this? Well... I would uh, well. What do I think about it? I think that I will wait. I will. I will. I would gladly be in the same room with someone else while they ate it, and then I would want to check on in on them every six months for the next two years just to make sure they're okay before I eat one. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it's 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 interesting for a number of reasons. The reason the the the, the press got a hold of it in a big way was partly because it was revealed that a lot of the money behind this project came from Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders of Google. And that kind of celebrity name really helps spread a lot of ink. But also that they've gone from now actually having a burger. When we talked about this a couple of months ago, it was just some small little pathetic white glob 
that was sitting on a skillet. That's right. Um, yeah. But time has passed, and they've actually. I forget how much it cost, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get the five burgers. There right. were lots of members of the press asking if they could have a burger, or they could try, and you know these um, scientists from the Haastricht University, I'm mispronouncing that, I think they're Dutch, had yeah. to explain, no, 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 we're not at the point where we can create this in any kind of cost-effective measure. But I mean, the, the point of this is to uh, create an alternate supply to the beef that we have, that we are growing at such a rapid pace in terms of our population, that there simply are going to be too many people for there to be enough cows to, to feed burgers. No, I, I, I get that. I mean, I'm just... You know, I'm I'm queasy about genetically modified foods. You know that are currently available. Uh, I am. You know, I, I get the benefits to this. I understand, uh, but the uh, the the uh, the idea of it right now doesn't have a lot of appeal for me. <laughs> it's one of those things that's kind of hard to get around, and this is not going to help. I'm going to throw up an image here, a close up of the uncooked patty, and the reason that I'm doing this is because this is probably one of the most revealing of what makes this patty different from uh, one that you might find. Because the way that they've been showing it, you could find it in a restaurant and, yeah, and think yeah. that's okay. But here I am, I've got a zoomed in close up that I've thrown up of the patty before it's been cooked. And it looks like it's made up of little tiny worms. And that's it does, because, it looks, yeah, like maggots or something, it really does. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's because when they grow this, they grow it in batches of little tiny fibers. Like so strands or something that they then weave together? Yeah. Correct, yes. So it, it starts off as a stem cell that's taken from the shoulder of a, of a cow, and then that is just basically given enough nutrients to do what cells do, which is to split, divide, and to grow. Yeah. And then they've just kind of helped make it grow into the shape that they need it to be. And once they get a little strand, they add it to the next batch and, and you know, go there. I mean, they've added some other ingredients to try to make it tastier. The consensus was that... It may have had the texture of beef. It sort of felt like beef, but it was dry. It wasn't necessarily tasty. Well, maybe what the, the thing to do would be to supplement it with real beef, you know, for a little while, just to sort of like patties that are half and half or, you know, three-quarters beef, just to, to use it as filler almost, you know. <laughs> like they do with chicken McNuggets. and Yeah, that kind of thing. Out goes the corn. In comes yeah. the 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 uh, what they're calling it culture beef. Every newspaper calls it lab-grown beef. The the name that they're trying to do, and it's important to get a good name, is that they're trying to call it cultured. I'm not sure that that's going to work. But it was interesting because Sergey Brin said that for him, the big advantage was that you could create burgers that um, would allow us to feel a little bit more humane about how we treat the animals in our world. That a big part of this is just how cattle and chickens and pigs are treated in terms of our food supply. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's not going to be too appealing for the masses. I think trying to get across to people, it's like there won't be any more burgers for everybody. So you have to kind of go in this direction. The alternate thing to think about in terms of people trying to solve this problem has been to start trying to convince people to eat insects. Right. I've eaten some insects. Yeah. I, yeah, I've eaten insects, and, and I'm okay with it. I mean, the, 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 the thing about eating insects is that if they're deep fried the way I had them on the street in Bangkok, which was just like a, a, like a, a stall, and, you know, like peanuts, like, you know, like something like bulk food almost. You just go to the guy, you know, I'll have a scoop of the grasshoppers and some of the ants. And they just sort of, you know, put them in a little bag for you and you walk down the street and eat them. 
And I mean, it, you know, as a North American who hadn't eaten a whole lot of bugs, uh, knowingly anyway, um, it, it was weird because like the grasshoppers have legs on them and things like it just, it, they, they are very much, they look very much like what they used to be. But when you eat them, when you taste them, they, they taste like uh, deep fried something. Anything is good deep fried. You deep fry, you know, anything. I mean, if you looked at a squid, you might not go, oh, my God, that looks delicious. But you deep fried, and it's good. Uh, and so, you know, a deep fried grasshopper wasn't such a bad thing. Good for you. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. I have not tried, um, which, which, by the way, the fact that you're saying this as Sharkopolis is just awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, saying, I've, I've eaten deep fried squid. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I'm told that the stalls on Bangkok, that what you're getting is kind of the street meat version, that you really need to go to one of the more culinary restaurants and really have a nice oh. uh, deep fried grasshopper or, or cricket. Well, they do, right? They do. Have, I mean, these are, I mean, this is pretty basic. I mean, this is like they're probably, you know, dipped in flour and deep fried. I mean, for 10 seconds, how long do you have to deep fry a grasshopper? Not very long. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a very quick process. And and I you I mean did it taste good I guess is the question. Well, it it, it tasted like a deep fried thing. I mean it just you know it, it didn't I, I if someone said to you said to me uh, what do grasshoppers taste like I'm not sure that I can answer that question even though I've eaten a bag of them a little bag full of them because you know they just tasted like something that had been deep fried like a little crunchy thing that had been deep fried and the thing about you know the eating them is I've been there for a while at this point. And so some of your inhibitions about things that you're going to eat that you, versus things that you wouldn't eat as a North American tend to fall away after a little while. Mm -hmm. And when you see people like, you know, the street food culture in Bangkok is, is everywhere. I mean, there's these cool uh, things. They have like these bicycles that'll have like a little, uh, like a, almost like a little barbecue welded onto the back of them and they drive around and you, you you sort of flag them down, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you want some chicken? And they'll just barbecue you on their bicycle, their little barbecue bicycle. They'll, they'll barbecue you some chicken or something like that. So it's a much different experience than street food is in North America. And, uh, and most of it that I tried was tasty and delicious. And then eventually I tried the bugs, and the bugs were all right. I mean, I, I, I think, you know <laughs> – you know, quite if I if I'm to be truthful about it, it was a little later on at night. I'm not going to say I hadn't been out doing things, and <laughs> and, and you know I'd had a I, you know it's 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 47 degrees every day, so you know you tend to drink a little bit of beer, and so I'd had a few beers, and I thought you know what I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, jump into that final taboo of the, the bug eating taboo, and it was fine. They were they were fine. I, I have a feeling that when they are cooked in a different way, if you were, because there are apparently restaurants that you can go to, yeah. that they would you would get a better sense of what they tasted like, really. But frankly, they were just like deep fried anything to me. Well, you know, in checking this out, I've seen a number of travel documentaries now, and the moment I realized that this is part of our future, I mean, I understand the problem that uh, we are going to run out of beef, and you have to have other uh, alternatives, which is not a bad thing. Life should have more variety. But I realized the insects were going to actually make it when I saw children eating them uh, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Uh, the one documentary I saw, the host went to a school, 
And at the school, what happens is the kids each night, they go out into the, their gardens and into the parks and they catch as many crickets as they can. And then when they, they go to school in the morning, they, they hand in their crickets to the teacher. While they're in classes, the chef cooks all the crickets that have been brought in by the, the kids and that becomes their lunch. That is real circle of light stuff, huh? That's like they're really sort of teaching the kids from, it's locavore in the extreme. Yeah, uh, and the the amazing thing was that the guy who was hosting it thought for a moment that he was going to mess up because he managed to finally get all the he had to wait all day. You know, the kids finally go out for for lunch. They get sit down at the table. Uh, he has talked to the chef. He's followed the whole process. The bowls of, of crickets are being handed out. And then, you know, the worst thing that you want as a television producer, off in the distance, he could hear an ice cream truck. Right. And he thought he was going to lose all the kids. And when they only a few left, right. others actually went back for another bowl of crickets. You realize, wow. oh, wow. You know, when you've got kids who are willing to choose crickets over ice cream, yeah, yeah. That's compelling. That says that there's something more. Because kids, of course, don't have all the hang-ups that we have necessarily. That's something they learn later on. Yeah. So, yeah. But you you mentioned that there are restaurants that cook and prepare these things. Um, there's a company called the Nordic Food Labs. Right. And in particular, they spend a lot of time cooking formic ants. And I'm interested in trying this because they say what happens is, I mean, you kill the ants by freezing them, and they kind of curl up into little balls. Right. And then once you've you've cooked them after they're they're frozen, uh, they said the most amazing thing happens when you pop them in your mouth, they immediately create this explosion of lime. What? Yeah. Well, it's the it's like lime. It's lime and lemony kind of flavor. It's the the last thing you expect an ant is going to taste like. It's because they they've got so much formic acid inside them, but it has this citrusy lime like taste, and it's an explosion of taste. In your mouth, it's the most surprising thing. It's an explosion of ant taste in your mouth, which yeah. I don't know. I, you know, it's I, I don't know how you market that. Like the, the whole thing about marketing uh, the 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 synthetic beef, or not synthetic beef, but the the, the yeah. last beef as cultured beef. I mean, uh, you know, that just brings to mind in my head ideas of cows spouting poetry. You know, the cultured, <laughs> the cultured animals that these come from. I, I don't know. I think there's some marketing hurdles to get over before we're we're all jumping into this. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the the big example that's pointed out is raw fish. Um, yeah. We now eat sushi, and I remember when sushi was not big. When it was well, still, people had like a weird attitude about it, like, oh my god, why would you eat something raw? I mean, it, it just seemed like crazy. We have stoves for a reason. Well, up at uh, Science North, which is a science center in Ontario, in Windsor, Ontario, they um, have an entire exhibit that's been put up there by Ripley's Believe It or Not. And one of the, the exhibits they have is a bug bistro where you can go and tuck into a bunch of insect uh, meals. And my favorite is the BLT sandwich, oh. which is lightly fried bee larvae, sliced tomatoes, and lettuce on toast. Okay, I'm going to see if I can find a picture of that. Hang on. <laughs> so, and they, they include on their app, uh, which is, you know, unbelievable science, uh, the recipe, which is you need bee larvae, one egg white, one teaspoon butter, one teaspoon of honey, of course, tomato, lettuce, slices of bread, mayonnaise, and one pinch of salt. Uh, okay. Tell you, if you can get your own, uh, you need to um, saute the bee larvae in butter, 
with a little bit of salt, and uh, you wait until they become golden brown and crispy looking. Mm, and you well. mix them with the egg and, and saute them with butter, and you bring them all together, you know, and that ends up becoming the the paste that you put on your sandwich. Right. Um, I, my screen share still isn't working. I have a picture here. We'll put it up on the website. Um, it looks good. I mean, this the 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 BL like the BLT sandwich. Uh, if that arrived at my table, I totally, uh, I totally. And in fact, it looks small. It looks like I'd have to eat about three of them to be uh, happy with the whole situation. <laughs> but they do look good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I have to admit, I've been um, a lot more convinced towards eating or trying insects than I would have say a year ago. And I don't mean like on a dare or in that fear factor sense, but actually that, hey, you know, at least compared to lab-grown beef, you're talking about something that's natural. Yeah. Our, our hang-up with insects is that we think of them as being bugs and creepy crawlies, but they're, they're made of the same stuff that the fish and the cows and the chicken and everything else, so why not? Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> that's uh, that's something. Well, we'll, we'll post uh, that picture so you can have a look at it and decide for yourself whether you would eat a BLT uh, sandwich made of bees and pollen and all sorts of other things. And uh, and then I've got a video here, which I haven't looked at yet because I found it while we are doing the show. I'm going to have a look at it, but it's creepy music boxes. And I think uh, if it turns out the way I think it's going to, then we'll, we'll throw that up on the site as well. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I guess that's it. Did you have anything else you want to add? No, that's it. I mean, uh, between dolls and sharktopus, I think we've spread enough magic for uh, enough podcast magic for one week. Yes, and I'm sorry that you, you seem to be having technical problems on your end, but at least you chose the right image of all the things we've thrown up on Hail You Zombies. I think Sharktopolis yeah. is probably the best one to represent yeah. uh, your side of this. I'm, 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 happy to, I'm happy to have that picture up. I just uh, wish I had more control over it. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone who's been joining us. It's good to have you come back after the summer. Uh, if you have any thoughts and ideas, please go to our website, hailyouzombies.com. You can share them with us there. We're going to have links for all the things that we've mentioned in the show, plus images and videos that you can check out there. See you later. Bye.